And as you're seated, please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49, we will begin reading in verse 28, and we will read all the way through chapter 50, the end of chapter 50, the end of Genesis. (laughs) Genesis chapter 49, verse 28 says, and as a reminder, we had studied these verses several weeks ago, (laughs) about the blessings that Jacob had given to his 12 sons. Verse 28 says, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people." Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household, only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was called, was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came to uh, and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. 
But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we are dependent on you, God, to teach us. Lord, to guide this study and, Lord, this time together. Father, I pray that you would have spoken what you would have said. Lord, that you would leave out what I shouldn't say. God, I pray that, um, that Jesus would be exalted, Lord, that the name of our great God, Yahweh, would be proclaimed and worshiped. And Lord, that we would come away from this place changed and ready to live another day, another week, as you see fit to give us for your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Well, brothers and sisters, we've made it to the end of Genesis. <laughs> Here we are. It has been quite a study. I trust that you have grown as I have through this foundational book of Genesis. It's the foundational book for our faith and really for the rest of the Scriptures. And we haven't shied away from the whole book of Genesis, even those chapters that the really good commentaries say, never preach these chapters. <laughs> but we've studied together, and this is um, God's Word, and that's why we've studied all of it. We, we've, we've come to it, and we've recognized that every word of this has been breathed out by God purposefully and given to us. This word, 2 Timothy 3 says, is profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God, and therefore, by extension, all of us together may be equipped, complete, and equipped for every good work. And so I hope that you have not, I hope that you have seen that these are not just Bible stories that we teach our kids at night before they go to bed, and that these are not just Sunday school lesson material. And I praise God that we do teach our children these things, but I'm grateful and hopefully you've seen as well, these are not fairy tales or fables or myths or legends, but real life. This is the truth, the beginning of the truth that God gave us, that we should receive with meekness, James 1 says, this implanted word which is able to save our souls and equips us for every good work. Jesus says we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we have seen this word, and we've seen it come alive. These are real, living people who made horrible decisions. They have sinned. They've rebelled. They've turned against God. We've also seen people turn to the Lord, and they've lived genuine lives of worship to Him, loving God, fearing the holy God. And over the course of at least 2,000 years of world history in just Genesis that we've covered, People have come and people have gone, but there is one who has remained, the good, the powerful God. The God who was before the beginning, the God who was in the beginning, and the God who has continued throughout 
without change. His purposes have continued. His plans have progressed. It's all been for his glory and our good. But these are examples for us, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, for our instruction. So we've learned a lot. We've been reminded about some new lessons or or taught new lessons. We've been reminded of many lessons. Um, Lord willing, these lessons haven't just gone in one ear and out the other. They've, They've come into our hearts and minds. They've changed us to be more like Christ. That's why we do this. Because we come here to his word, we open our mind and our heart to hear what he has to say to us, to be instructed, to be changed, and to grow. And we're going to continue to do that in a new book of the Bible that we will walk through in the coming weeks. But for now, let's finish Genesis, and there are four sections to cover here. So at the end of chapter 49, verses 29 to 33 is the first section, and in this section we see the final moments of Jacob's life, his final Moments, And he repeats his desire to be buried in a very particular place. You remember that chapter 47, he had already told Joseph all of these things uh, one-on-one. And we saw how important his words were at the time in chapter 47 because he knew that his impact on his family was going to be uh, in place in this request, this command. So he repeats it here in verse 29, a command to be buried in the promised land instead of Egypt. And it's for this specific purpose, to teach all of his sons and to edify his family. What stands out to us, I don't know if it stood out to you as we read it together, but what stood out to me is the precise detail that he gives. And then he rehashes specifically and pointedly. He says, you know, the field, the one field, the, the one field I'm talking about, the one that Abraham, you know, I mean, he, go, he goes to great lengths to say this exact field. If he had GPS at the time, he would have given the address, given the GPS coordinates, and then shared it on Google Maps, right? I mean, he's like, we, we need to make sure we've got the right place here. And all of this was after he had made Joseph swear. Again, Joseph, swear to me that you will do this. So this is not just a dying man's last wish, This is the importance of passing on the hope of what God's going to do to fulfill his word to the succeeding generations. You need to know this truth, he's telling them. You need to know that I believe God's truth, and you should believe God's truth also. That's the message from Jacob to his sons in this final command. The land of Canaan is our land. We're here in Egypt, but we're going back there one day. So so believe this word of God. Can you think of any better message or lesson to leave behind to your children or to people who come after you than that? I I was thinking this this week, I I would love to be able to teach my kids some woodworking skills, but I don't have any, (laughs) so I can't teach that to them. I I would love to be able to teach them how to weld. (laughs) I can't weld. Working on a car more. I mean, certain things I would love, but if there's nothing else that I can leave for my children, it's that lesson. Know the word of God and trust his word. Trust his promises. And it's an important lesson because these people of Israel are in Egypt and they had strong beliefs in Egypt about life and about death and what to do with bodies. The Egyptians embalmed bodies because of their belief that the soul would return one day to the body. The body was the home for the soul in the Egyptian beliefs, and if the body was destroyed or it simply just decayed in the ground, well, the soul could become lost forever. So they took great pains to embalm bodies, and so much of their 
life was influenced directly by their beliefs. All of their beliefs, decisions about what should happen to their bodies after they've died and what they should do while they're alive, it was all influenced by their belief system. And Jacob has lived in Egypt for 17 years. He knows all of this, so he wants this lesson to be foremost in their mind. Bury me in the promised land, not here in Egypt. So brothers and sisters, we are encountering that question. How much of our life, how many of our decisions in life are based on our beliefs? Now, the correct answer is all of them. But there may be a difference between our stated beliefs and the beliefs that we really hold inside. We consider this a lot, but what are our decisions? What does our life reveal about what we truly believe when it comes to life and death, when it comes to our free time, when it comes to work and family? I mean, the big things in life, all the way down to the little things, what do we show that we really believe in our hearts? We can say we believe the Bible, but does God's Word shape more and more of our thinking about everyday issues, not just the eternal ones. This is a common question people have. What do I do with my body when I die? Now, some people are saying, I don't want to talk about that. (laughs) But that's that's what we've encountered here, and it's a big question for people. I've spoken to many who've said, I don't care what you do with my body, I'm not going to be here, right? (laughs) Do whatever you want. And there's nothing wrong with that, because there's truth that our body is dust, and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there is teaching in that. I don't care what you do. I'm not going to be here. I'll be with my Lord. Others have said, well, I don't want to be cremated. I want to be buried. Why would that be a big deal? It's because of some beliefs that are behind it. Uh, The preferences that we have, the, the decisions that we make, they come from the beliefs that we hold to. People who said, I want to be buried and not cremated have said so because, look, there's God's promise that when he says it's time, Jesus is coming back and we're going to be raptured out of this place. The dead in Christ will rise first, he says. And I know God can gather up ashes and he can go get bodies out of the ocean, but in burying me, I want to give that lesson to the people who come after me that I believe Jesus is coming back. Not only that he's coming back, that he's coming back soon, so bury me. Cremation itself actually arose out of pagan cultures that taught burning the body helped the soul to escape the land of the living. And so their beliefs, again, dictated what they did in their life and death. Cremation really became almost extinct as Christianity spread. This isn't a sermon about all of the issues involved in all of this and and all of the questions we might have. It's not even against or for cremation or burial. These are just some of the things to think about because of the instructions that Jacob left his family and to show the breadth and the depth of our thinking that needs to be shaped by the Scriptures. The the decisions that we make and the choices we make and the, the directions that we go, how much of those are influenced, shaped, and led by the Word of God? How many do we just make because we just don't know what else to do? In our culture... There's really no pagan association with cremation, really. I mean, you know, some people think, look, it's, it's just selfish to be buried. It takes up so much space. And is, why would you bring that up? Well, because that's part of our culture. And Joseph is not living outside of culture. He's living in this land of Egypt, and so he embalms his father Joseph because that's what's expected of him. And he doesn't believe the religious teaching that goes along with embalming. 
But that was customary. It was culturally expected. If you're going to honor your father, you embalm him. So he does that. There's nothing wrong with that. Remember, we've been talking about how Joseph, how Israel, these people were living in the land of Egypt, but they were not of Egypt. And that's how we are living in this world, but not of this world. But it was the word of God that was shaping Jacob's decisions as he died. Bring the word of God to bear on all of your thoughts, on all of your feelings, your words, your actions, your attitudes, your behavior, everything. That's the idea we're getting at. That's what we're driving at here. Now, another standout part of this lesson is that Jacob says he's to be buried where Leah is buried. Now, as we read through the story uh, of Jacob's life in the scriptures, we saw that Rachel was his favorite. You might expect him to be married, uh, buried with Rachel, but it's Leah, and it was important because Jacob saved that honor of being buried with the chosen line of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah. He saved that for Leah over Rachel. And we've seen that, that happen in Jacob's life where his, his, he has to align his thinking more and more every day with what God's plan is, not his own. Rather than his own preferences, his own desires, he's learning to, to change, to, to be part of what God has said, this is what's happening. And Leah was the one who gave birth to um, the tribe of Judah, who was that chosen tribe that the Messiah would come through. And so Jacob continued that growth right up to his final moments. And verse 33 says, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. That means Jacob didn't just pass away. He didn't just cease to exist and go off into the great unknown. He went to a place where his people were, his family was, Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah and Sarah. They're still alive wherever they are, and that's where he went. And, and so that's hope for us. He, he didn't just pass away. He went to be with his family and to be with the Lord. There's another implication here. It's a little bit weak. It's not, it's not a, a strong case, but I think it's here. Um, he recognized them when he got there, and they recognized him. Otherwise, why would it be stated that way? The lesson, though, the lesson for this section is that we need to make sure that we are continually training ourselves to think more biblically every day, in every way. In every way, bringing the Word of God to bear on our thoughts, on our actions, our attitudes, the things that we're doing and saying, all of the great big things and the eternal things, all the way down to the little things that we do. Why am I doing this? What am I hoping for? What am I aiming for? Keep the most important things the most important things. Keep the little things little, but do all things for the glory of our God. That's section one. Section two, chapter 50, the final chapter of Genesis. Verses one through 14 is number two, and this is, these brothers are fulfilling their father's wish. Fulfilling their father's wish. Jacob dies. Joseph is the one that lived part of his adult life without his father. He looks like he's the saddest of all of them, right? I mean, he's the one who falls on his father's face. He's, he's crying. He's kissing him. It, it's a touching, emotional scene, isn't it? He, he's the only one that's recorded as, as doing this, but I'm, I'm sure they all were mourning. Importantly, though, it's, it's pointed out because it's a direct fulfillment of God's word to Jacob back in chapter 46. Jacob, God said, Joseph's own hand will close your eyes in death in chapter 46. So it was a fulfillment of prophecy. 
So as we talked about, again, Joseph had the physicians of Egypt embalm Jacob, his father. And the entire process took 70 days, 40 days for embalming, 30 days for mourning. And we don't need to get into the details of what they did. You can look that up and, and uh, enjoy those sordid details if that's what you'd like to do. But they preserved the body. They wrapped it in cloth and they prepared his body for burial. And Moses calls this out because... Customarily, the Egyptians would set aside 72 days for a king or a pharaoh. Jacob was given 70 days. This was a high honor for this foreign man, Jacob. When the process was complete, though, verse 4 says, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh. We don't know why he spoke to the household instead of just going directly to Pharaoh like he did at other times. But Pharaoh approves the request. He sends those important groups, all of his servants, the elders of his house, and the elders of Egypt. Again, Jacob is highly respected and honored by Pharaoh. And they combined with the entire household of the 12 sons of Israel, minus their children and animals, and they made a huge procession. We read this. It was a very great company with the chariots and horsemen. And there are theories as to why all this fanfare. Why Why did Pharaoh get so involved and so supportive of this? It may be. Just genuine goodwill because of all the good that God did through Joseph to Egypt. Maybe it was because he was, he, he was sending the army along and he was sending along all these people to make sure that everybody did come back instead of staying in the land. And that's why their children and animals were left as well. But in any case, Joseph and his brothers went because they were honoring their father's instructions. They were honoring him. Verse 10 says, they came to the right place and they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. They made a mourning for his father seven days. And it was so strange to the Canaanites. What is happening here? Why are the Egyptians coming all the way here from Egypt to do this right here? What were they seeing, you may wonder? (laughs) There are some ancient sources that indicate the Egyptians loved elaborate funeral ceremonies. And they loved the rituals that that varied over time, but they could include professional mourners who would come and weep and cry. You know, I mean, can you imagine getting paid to cry for other people? You can be hired to go to funerals. They would tear their clothes. They would wear sackcloth. They would fast. People would shave all their hair off so they'd walk around bareheaded and barefoot they possibly even lacerate themselves, cut themselves so that blood flowed and tears flowed and all of this sorrow the Egyptians got really into funerals. And so the Canaanites are watching all of this and it's a strange thing to them. But the whole reason for recording this, the reason that we have this in the inspired scripture is verse 12, thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. The sons of Israel obeyed Israel in his command. And the lesson was clear for them. And the lesson was seen by the Canaanites in the land, the Egyptians, and all around, this is our land. Remember this land, Israel. Remember children of Israel. This is the good land that God is giving us. So when it's all finished, in verse 14, they head back to Egypt. And God has them there for a time, growing and flourishing until he brings them out in the Exodus. But our lesson here is honor those who came before you. Honor those who came before you and are still around and are older than you, who have wisdom. Learn from and and appreciate the wisdom of those who are older than you, when it really is wisdom. Even when you don't understand, when you're you're younger and, and you're given instructions and, I don't really want to do that. I don't understand why you would say that. 
follow the instructions and follow the wisdom that is passed on to you. You'll, you'll recognize it. I, I, I can't uh, even remember how many times I've heard instructions and I've followed them and I didn't understand why, but later on you look back and go, ah, okay, I understand now why that was wisdom. Well, that's section two. Let's keep going. Chapter 50, verses 15 to 21 is section three, and this is where we see fear and forgiveness repeated. Fear and forgiveness. Now, the father has died. The 11 brothers recognize things have changed. So they become fearful of Joseph. Why? Well, probably because they thought that Joseph would be a lot like them. (laughs) Well, all of the bad that we did, Joseph endured a lot of suffering from it. He's probably going to come after us now. Dad said, we need, you need to be nice to us, but now that dad's gone, we better watch out. They're afraid of payback because they didn't understand forgiveness. They didn't understand grace, forgiveness, working through issues. I was, I was appreciative of Amos even praying about this this morning in our, in our time of reading and, and prayer, that when we notice sin, when there's an offense that happens, when there's some kind of wrongdoing Uh, we need to deal with it. And and we can go and confront the issue. We can can talk about the issue of sin or of an offense that happened. And there are things that we need to do to prepare ourselves before we do that. But when we come together, there needs to be a confession of the sin to one another. I I said this to you or said this about you. I I did this to you. The, The saying specifically what the sin is, and then saying what God says about it, it was wrong, it was sinful. And there's nothing that comes after that, but you really should have, right? That, that's not confession of sin. Well, I did this wrong, but, you know, it was because you, so, so there's no justification or excuse for it. There, there's sorrow over it. I, I'm sorry, I did this. There's confession, and then there's repentance with one another as, as we say, look, I've, I won't do that again by God's grace. <laughs> I, I will work on not doing that anymore. Or I have stopped doing what I was doing before. There's, there's a turning away from sin when we're working through sin together. There's, there's the confession. There's the repentance. There's restitution if needed or, or restoration. You know, I took this from you. I'm giving it back. Um, I took this from you and I'm giving it back and some extra to make up for what I've taken, if that's necessary, right? So you confess what you've done. There's repentance, there's restitution or or restoration. That's on one side. The other side then gives forgiveness, grants forgiveness, the removal of guilt. There's no anger. There's nothing left of the wrong now because we've talked about it. You've confessed it. You've repented of it. You've restored anything that was taken if necessary. So now there is forgiveness. And then the last part of that is reconciliation, the relationship is restored and it continues in some way, oftentimes stronger than it was before the sin. That's what it looks like when, when people believe in the Lord and they understand the forgiveness that they've received, what it looks like to work through sin together, the confession, the repentance, the restoration, the forgiveness, the reconciliation. What we teach our children so often, though, is say you're sorry, right? Right? I'm sorry, even though I'm not. (laughs) 
And there's no, there's no confession of the sin. There's no repentance that's necessary in that. There's definitely no talk of reconciliation or restoration. And that means two people can have a sin happen between them and the relationship can be destroyed and they never see each other or talk to each other again. Rather than having reconciliation, rather than having their, even their relationship strengthened because of it. So when you've done something that offends or hurts somebody, when you've done something wrong, if there is that time of coming together, working through it together biblically, the issue should be dropped, right? Not brought back up again. But often what happens is we fall into one of two extremes. Often if I've done something wrong and I, and I feel really bad about it and we talk about it, I'll still think about it. I'll still bring it up, right? I'll, I'll, still, I'll still, you know, I'll, what can I do to make it up to you? If there's already been forgiveness, nothing, right? There's already, it's already been forgiven. But we act like these 11 brothers. Well, you know, it was forgiven, but I need to do something else. I need to say something else. I need to bring it up again. And, and we don't understand forgiveness when we do that. The other extreme, that's one side. The other extreme is just pretend nothing happened and, well, you just need to get over it. Right? Um, we watched a movie uh, the other night. A young girl had done something wrong to somebody else. That person came to that girl and she said, well, don't expect an apology. I'm too progressive. And we went, for one, what does that even mean? (laughs) Uh, But for two, it's a twisting of forgiveness, of, of grace, just to presume that everybody should just get over it when I make a mistake or when I do something wrong. Right? That's a, that's a twisting, that's a, a ruining and a spoiling of it. That's not grace, just to, just to pretend nothing happened. It's not forgiveness just to expect and demand that people forgive you. Now, we've mentioned it before, but there are some times when somebody does something wrong, maybe they didn't even know they did it, maybe it was unintentional, and we have freedom in Christ to just simply forgive it and drop it and just move on with life. But when there is something that needs to be worked through together, it should be together as family members, brothers and sisters working together through sin, through issues, through offenses. And one needs to ask forgiveness, and the other side needs to give the forgiveness. We're not given an option in the Scriptures other than that. Have you ever noticed that there's no, there's no good, clear steps for how to separate from fellowship from believers in the Scriptures. There's no, there's no good, clear direction for, well, this is how you leave a church. They're not there. You're, you're, not, you're not supposed to need steps. If you have to leave a church, it's supposed to be so rare and so obvious that things are wrong that you just, you just go and you find a church. <laughs> what you're saying is this isn't even a church. I've got to leave because I've got to find a church to be a part of. There's no good steps for how to leave. Because the consistent instructions in the scriptures are, you're at a church, you're at a local church, so be there and stay there. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you come to worship God, you remember your brother has something against you, you stop worshiping, you leave, you, work, you figure that out, you work through it, and then you come back. In Mark 11, Jesus said, if you stand praying, forgive if you have something against anybody. Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, forget all about it and stew about it and tell everybody else about how mad you are. No, that's not at all what he says, so please don't write that down. (laughs) If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There's no other option. 
He doesn't say sit and stew. He doesn't say go gossip about those people. You go to him. Luke 17, Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Again, no option given. If he, for, if he repents, forgive. See, this, the two different sides there. You have to go, and let's talk about it. Let's work together. Okay, we've worked together. I've forgiven, and that's it. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I, I repent, then do you have an option? No, he says you must forgive him. Jesus says in Matthew 6, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See, it's a two-way street. When somebody messes up, we can talk to them about it. Let's work through it together. When I've messed up, I need to go talk to the person about it. We need to work through it together. And when we've done that, when we've confessed, when we've repented, when we've restored or, or given restitution where it's needed, forgiveness needs to take place, and then reconciliation can happen. And we've talked about how that can look, um, maybe not spending as much time together, but there's still a relationship that's restored. But again, often it can become stronger. But neither of those two extremes happen where you constantly bring up the issue, you constantly live in the past, you constantly have to try to think about what do I do to make up for that, make up for that. And the other extreme of get over it, forgive it. Those are both avoided. Those same two errors, by the way, are easily repeated with God. You know, some people live their life, well, I, I've got to do good things, I've got to do good works because I, I sinned, I messed up, I, you know, I did something against God and I've got to try to make up for it. You can't. Well, I did something wrong, but it's okay, God forgives, he can just get over it, right? Well, God just forgives all sins. I'm forgiven in Jesus, he can just forget it. Those two extremes we, we don't just do with people, we do them with God also. So we don't live that way in those extremes. We live here where the scriptures tell us to live, understanding forgiveness, understanding what grace is, working through this together, not taking sin lightly, not elevating ourselves. These brothers here, these 11 brothers don't understand forgiveness. They think anger is still there. They think Joseph is living in the past, seeking revenge against them. And so they send this message asking forgiveness. You know, your father said to do this. Your father said to, to, to forgive us. And then they themselves come and bow before Joseph. We're your servants, verse 18 says. We're the servants of the God of your father, they say. Please don't hurt us. <laughs> and Joseph is so overcome, he cries. But notice what he doesn't say. As these brothers come to him, Joseph does not say, I forgive you. Say, Why not? There's no need to forgive them. They were already forgiven. Way back in chapter 45, we covered it. You know, he, he told them, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves for what you did, for God sent me here before you to preserve life. He explained to them that God had done it, that God was providing for them all through it, and so that he had a job to provide for them as well. That's what God was doing. He had kissed each one of them and cried on each one of their shoulders and their necks as they came back together. They were restored together. So he doesn't say here, I forgive you, because it was already settled. He had already forgiven them. For one, for two, he says this was all part of God's plan. He says, don't, don't fear. Don't fear me. Don't fear what I will do. I'll provide for you and your little ones. I said I would, and God told me to. This is what God has for me to do. God meant it for good. Am I in the place of God, he says? 
That's an important part of our forgiveness. We're not in the place of God. God's place is when you repent and you, you ask forgiveness, he gives it. So Joseph says, I'm not, I'm not going to stand in God's way. In other words, he says, if I'm going to think about the past at all, I'm going to think about how God has used both the bad and the good to bring about his perfect plan. God brought it all about. He used it. He's still using it. So don't think I'm going to do anything bad when God meant it for good. (laughs) Don't think I'm living in anger and bitterness just waiting for that perfect time to get revenge. Because even though you did this and you meant evil, God brought good. What God means for good, I'll see as good or evil. So he doesn't say, you know, I forgive you. Because he already had. He also doesn't say, well, the end justifies the means. You know, all's well that ends well. He, you know, he doesn't say, well, it wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> he doesn't say, oh, it's no problem. He said, no, let's, let's be honest. You meant evil. You, you meant really bad things. You, you, you had a horrible thing, a horrible plan in mind. Let's not downplay that, but let's not also not downplay how great God is because he used that evil that you meant for good. God turned it to good. So, so Joseph doesn't say, well, you know, it all worked out in the end, or, well, the good outweighed the bad. You know, no, our great sovereign God, perfect in goodness and power and wisdom, even used your evil for good. If God this did all this to bring about good, how could I do anything otherwise than good? So we notice that the basis for the forgiveness that he gave them was not whether they deserved it. It was based on God who God is, what God was doing through all of the wrong that happened. So we've seen this ideal. We've seen the ideal here where, where people come together and, and they, they work through forgiveness and, and there's the confession, there's repentance, there's restitution, there's forgiveness and reconciliation. That's the ideal when both sides are obeying Jesus. But this little event brings up what happens when there's another party involved, another person involved who doesn't quite get forgiveness. They think they have to keep bringing it up. Or, or we think we have to keep bringing it up. Or, or the person just says, get over it. You know, you're, you're just supposed to forgive. When you're dealing with somebody who doesn't understand, it gives us the opportunity to explain forgiveness because of God's grace. It's an opportunity for the gospel to share the gospel of God's grace to forgive us. We can explain that that what forgiveness is and what grace is to somebody who thinks that they have to keep bringing it up or that we're going to be upset at them still when we've already forgiven. We've talked about it before, but we're messy. We're messy people. Everything doesn't always turn out nice and clean and happy, but it can be such a living picture of the gospel when we are messing up and forgiving, (laughs) doing something wrong and and admitting it and, and, and working through it and being forgiven. So our lessons here, forgive messy people. Forgive all the messy people around you because you're messy also. <laughs> Reconcile as a messy person. You know, there's no fairy tale endings. Life doesn't happen that way. And then you see the, the next part. Remember the swag of the flag. And I know that, that just, it hurts the ears. It hurts my ears when I hear that. It's just, it's terrible. The swag of the flag. But it's made me remember. <laughs> It's, it's helped me to think about what it means, the sovereignty, the wisdom, and the goodness of the faithful, living, almighty God. 
That's what Joseph is getting after here. You meant evil, but God turned it for good. That's who our God is. When you think about God in that way, it changes, it influences, it affects how you think about forgiveness for other people, how much he's forgiven you, what sin is, what grace is, and forgiveness. Well, that's section three. Section four, the last one. In verses 22 to 26, the final moments of Joseph's life. Now we're at the end of Joseph's life, and God blessed Joseph with a long life. He was able to three to see the three generations after him. Egyptians thought 110 years old, that's, that's an ideal, that's perfect lifespan. Joseph matches that, but to him it's shorter than his father's. <laughs> so, so there's no sadness, there's no anger or bitterness, we don't see any pride either. Instead, Joseph continues that trust in the word of God to be fulfilled. He says, I'm about to die, but God. Some of our favorite words in scripture, aren't they? But God. Now, Joseph, as good as he was, you know, we never see him all through Genesis. We never see him do anything explicitly wrong. We never see him do anything that's, that's sinful. And we know that he was sinful, like all of us are, but even though he had a strong faith in the Lord, but he was still going to die. Just like everybody who had come before him and everybody who comes after him, Joseph is going to die, but God is going to continue. Genesis is full of graves and death. This person lived this long and died, and that person lived that long and then died, and, and this person died, and they're buried here. And, and look at how the entire book ends at, in verse 26. Then Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's how the first book of the Bible ends, with a man in a coffin. <laughs> it hadn't started out that way. You remember way back in chapter 1, it, it, didn't, it started with God. It started with life and the life that God made and, and everything that he created it was innocent and it was pure. It was altogether very good, but as mankind sinned and chose rebellion against God, death entered, disease entered, weeds came, sin spread to everybody, and the curse of sin spread across creation. And from that moment on, all of creation has been waiting for God to send the serpent head crusher to redeem us from sin, from death, from disease, from weeds, from all of the things that came from sin. So even as Genesis closes with a death and a body in a coffin, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, are in Egypt. I mean, what's happening here? The story doesn't end, does it? Continues on so that God will deliver his people and give them the land despite their sin. And he gives them the land. He protects them in the land despite all of their sin. He judges them. He even eventually removes them from the land because of their sin, but he doesn't destroy them despite their sin brings them back into the land. He gives the birth of the serpent head crusher in the person of Jesus Christ himself. And because of our sin, the perfect sinless God, man, son of God, perfect man Jesus was humiliated, put to death on a cross, and God's plan of salvation is brought about perfectly. What, what people meant for evil against Jesus, God used for good, that we can be saved. Yet even now, all of creation is waiting for that redemption to be removed from the curse of sin. That's what we long for. That's what we hope for in Jesus. That's the plan of God. It was set in motion. It's just beginning as Genesis comes to an end. 
And it continues today, even 2,000 years after Genesis, more than 2,000 years after Genesis ends. So as Genesis ends, it really is just the end of the beginning because God's plan will continue. So Joseph dies here and he hopes for the short-term promise of God. We're going to the land. We're going to enter the promised land. And it's the high point of faith in Joseph's life. Hebrews 11 points out this, this part of Joseph's life. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Joseph is saying, look, I've got the same message that Jacob had. God's going to bring us up out of the land. But he doesn't do it the same way Jacob does. Jacob said, God's going to bring us out of the land, so bury me now when I die. Joseph says, God's going to bring us into that land, so wait until then. Carry me out with you. Same message, just done differently. But the point is, the same lesson is that God's going to fulfill his word. Trust the Lord. Trust his word. And they did. Exodus 13, 19 says they carried his bones out when they left Egypt. Joshua 24, 32 says they buried him in the land just as he had instructed them to do. God's plan continues. It still continues today. So the question here is then, The question is not whether you're a part of God's plan. God has a plan for this earth. He has a plan for every life. The question is, are you actively engaged in God's plan? That's that blank in your notes. Are you actively engaged? Because you can be an unwilling participant in God's plan, but you're still a part of his plan. Have you responded as an actively engaged part of God's plan in repentance, in faith? In Jesus Christ? Are you striving to please Him, to glorify Him with your life? That's His plan. Or are you trying to stand on your own? I don't need any of that. I don't want any of that. I'd rather try to be what I want to be and do what I want to do. I don't need God. I don't want God. You can resist and you can rebel. You can refuse to bow down to God. But God will still receive glory. His plan will still be fulfilled and judgment will come to those who reject God, to those who deny God. The judgment will come, and it will be a righteous judgment, but it will be an eternal, severe judgment. So his plan includes saving those who will repent now, who will believe in Jesus Christ now. That way of salvation that God gives only comes through Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Savior. He is our Lord, our Savior for eternity, but also now. So behold, now is the favorable time, the scripture says. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you don't know this Jesus, I'm going to be here all day. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of our other pastors. Talk to somebody at the information counter, but don't leave if you don't know Jesus. The only way, the only truth, the only life. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, Lord. Thank you that he came, that he redeemed us, Lord All who come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden will come to him and he gives rest. Father, because of our sins, even if we're not aware of it, we are weary and heavy laden and God, there is in this world no hope. This world will pass away, God. The things in this world are transient, but God, you're eternal. You're unchanging. God, your word is truth. It's forever true. Father, thank you for revealing it to us. God, thank you for giving it to us. Lord, thank you for Genesis, Lord, that sets this foundation for us of who you are, what you've done, what you've been doing since the beginning, God. How your plan continues even today, Father, that you are so 
powerful and sovereign control and, and good. God, you're so merciful and gracious. You're so long-suffering and patient with us. God, thank you for that. Lord, thank you that you have not rushed into judgment, God, that you haven't struck us down as we deserve every time or, or the first time that we sin, but God, you allow us to continue so that your goodness will bring us to repentance. Father, thank you. You're so good to us. Lord, help us to live as if that is true, as if it were true in our life, Father, that your word shapes all of our thoughts and all of our actions, God, that we would consider what we do and why we do it, Father, and how we can glorify you in all that we do. Father, especially for those people around us who are still in this world and of this world, God, I pray that you would give us the words to say and the boldness to speak, the love, Father, to just look past the ridicule, the scorn, the persecution that may come for that, Father. God, give us a great love to share this love of yours, this truth of yours, that Jesus Christ is our Lord and he's our Savior. And Lord, we have hope, we have faith because of him. God, thank you. We praise you, Lord. We exalt your name. We give you all the praise, the glory, and the honor. Father, we, um, we give ourselves to you. Lord, as we close, God, I pray that if someone does not know you, if someone has never heard this, God, that they would not leave until they speak with someone who can point the way to Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would point one another to Jesus, whether we've messed up, whether we've sinned, offended somebody, or whether we've just gotten together because we love one another, because Jesus loved us. God, would you receive that glory? Would you be blessed? And would you bless our efforts, God, toward that end? We thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.